This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Two things. So at eight weeks, all all fetuses are female until eight weeks in utero. Then if there are Y chromosomes and they are working properly, right, they start to create male genitals. The clitoris is the head of the penis. It's the same, it's an, it's an, I can't say that word, but it's the same as the head of the penis. Right. Um, the foreskin is actually the same as the lips. The, the testes are the same as the eggs and the scrotum is the same as the outer lips. Like the, it's all. That I did not know. And it just forms differently depending on form- the hormones that. Yeah. Wow. And the only other difference is the penis has like about 4,000 nerve endings and the clitoris has between eight and 9,000. So it's way more sensitive. And the clitoris is the only organ in the human body designed solely for pleasure. Which is a hint right there that it's supposed to be enjoyed. Hey, what's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of the Allison Interviews Podcast. I have a pretty interesting guest on this episode. Her name is Jamie Waxman, and she is a sex educator turned sex therapist. She's also a very well-known speaker, author, writer, podcaster, filmmaker, And she is a licensed marriage and family therapist. So she provides traditional talk therapy. And her expertise is really in helping individuals and couples around relationships, gender, sexual issues, sexuality. And she is just like a young Dr. Ruth. (laughs) So I've known Jamie for a long time. I've actually been friends with her for many decades. We grew up together. And I joke with her during the episode that when we were having lunch, together in middle school, never in a million years would I have clocked her as a future sex expert. (laughs) But here we are in 2022. You know, life is funny like that. So I'm going to say sit back, relax, and enjoy this entertaining and very educational interview with marriage and family therapist and sexuality expert and educator, Ms. Jamie Waxman. And by the way, if you are intrigued and want to learn more, you can find her on Instagram at sextherapistmom or at waxmansextherapy.com. All right, enjoy. Okay. So Jamie Waxman. All right. So this is so interesting. My biggest memories of you. Okay. So for people listening or watching, we grew up together. We went to the same school and my memories are having lunch with you. I think in middle school or in high school, like we would always have lunch together in a group of kids. And not that you can tell what somebody's going to become when they're in middle school, but I would never have looked at you and think, future sex expert right here. <laughs> I would not have either. <laughs> or you're not going to be like, Hey guys, guess what I'm going to be when I grow up, you know, like it just doesn't happen like that. So, so let's start from the beginning. Like when did you decide that you were passionate about human sexuality? Yeah, no, a great question. I want to say like one thing that's really interesting and is very different now is the internet, right? So I was struggling with questions about my sexuality from a pretty young age, like 12, 11, 12, really young, like wondering Mm -hmm. who I am and what I would be, but like never really more out of a shame space, more out of like my attractions were to, you know, sometimes to both sexes. And so Mm -hmm. that was something that was always there. So I was always thinking about it and I became pretty sexually active by 14, 15. So a young enough age that I understood sex, but like, and I would talk to like other friends about it. But what really happened was in my twenties, I was a radio producer and I had been sort of shoved onto this radio site. It was called eyata.com. It was a talk station on the internet. It was the first of its kind. People would go into their offices to listen to our internet site because that's where the T1 lines, the faster hookup lines were not Mm -hmm. 
And I was put on a show about sexuality. My host was a man named Bob Berkowitz, and he had been the MSNBC correspondent or the the Today Show correspondent. For, yeah, I remember him. Okay, right. And he had a show called Real Personal. So I worked closely with him from when I started to when IATA closed. And in that time, I would do three hours a day producing radio with him. And because we were internet radio, we always had to have guests on. We always we weren't going to get a lot of phone calls. So I became pretty quickly an expert in the sex field because I had to find all of the people who were doing, who were talking about sex. And every interview just fascinated me. And the reality too was the first day Bob put me on the air because he wanted me to make sure I was comfortable talking about sex. And all of my childhood shame and curiosity, I brought it to the show. I just, I laid it out for him, like about my first experiences. And it was so cathartic. And we would get a lot of mail from people who were just, you know, sharing how cathartic our show had been to them as well, how they had a place to talk about this. And it was healing for me. Like it healed some childhood stuff. And as a result, I realized like this felt better than radio. This like felt like a place where I could now use my own healing to Mm -hmm. help others. And so that's really what shifted everything for me was Bob Berkowitz and this IATA show called Love Bites with Bob Berkowitz. And it shifted so much that because we would have all of these guests on our show that were all in the sexuality field, I connected with so many of them through that show. The owners of a sex toy shop in New York called Babeland had come on our show a couple of times, Rachel and Claire, and I loved them and I wanted to work there. And so I gave them my resume. I got an interview. I got a job there. The, mm-hmm. the head of like the wider university sexuality program came. I was like, I should get a master's in sex education. I should further my career. So I knew about that through them. So I did that. And then the person who was most influential and most important for my time there was a woman named Candida Royale, who was a feminist erotic director of movies for couples. She became one of my best friends, but through her, I started working on adult movies and doing things in the more media realm. Okay. So what were you doing in adult movies? Exactly. So in adult movies, I started out, I worked with Candida on a film called Stud Hunters and I was not good at this job, but I was the continuity director. So that was the first thing. So I had to make sure in each of the scenes that everything was like lined up, right? Like the shot, like people were wearing the same clothes. They were in the same places. Not my, not my strongest suit, but so I did that for that. Then I moved on to produce one of Candida's movies called Under the Covers, So I worked on that. And then from there, I actually got my own series with Adam and Eve. And I did a set of three sex education movies where I was on camera, but as the host. And I wrote and co-directed those. I really had somebody else who very much helped me direct. And so I shot three of those. That was, oh gosh, in like 2007. So you were the host, like, so there would be a couple next to you or a couple behind you and you would be explaining everything? Well, in those, it was more like I would introduce, I would be in between the scenes. So it was Adam and Eve because of the nature of what my videos were. There was like a very porn component. Some people don't like that word. I would do like an interstitial, like before the next set would come on, I would talk about something like, for instance, one of them was a two women and we would talk about like, how do you strap ons or something like that? A very short bit though. We're talking about silicone toys versus, you know, hard toys. And then the next scene would just play down the road. I did one last movie for Adam and Eve called 101 positions for lovers, where I also kind of did the same thing. We had real couples in that and I would talk in before and I did voiceovers throughout the whole movie in that one so that I would describe what was going on in each scene. But I was never in the scenes with the actors. I mean, there might have been like one or two like silly points where we did something, but it wasn't while they were having sex. I mean, I was there while they were having sex. And then I directed some just erotic vignettes for Playgirl as well. But yeah, that led to... I was the sex advice columnist for Playgirl for yeah, I remember. Yeah. a long time. I had a column in a New Jersey paper called Stepping Out for a while where mm-hmm. I didn't talk about remember my that too. Life. Yeah. And then I've actually written four books now, which one started with a masturbation book called Getting Off, A Woman's Guide to Masturbation, which has now completely like been overshadowed by Come As You Are, which is one of the most excellent book on like female orgasm and female sexual okay. desire that's out there. And then 
my last book was actually how to break up with anyone, letting go of friends, family, and everyone in between, which was not about like romantic relationship breakups as much as it was about all the other breakups. Any, we have in okay. So I want to ask your opinion on the umbrella term of porn and the concept of not all porn is created equally, meaning so you mostly when you were working in that area, right, you were working mainly in adult content as it pertained to couples, right? Like lovemaking couples, how to have a better sex life with your partner. So are you of the mind that that type of porn would be considered much different than a lot of the things that you would see like on Pornhub or YouPorn or some of the things that are like more fetishy, more extreme, more gonzo? Like, what are your thoughts I think it's hard to answer because here's the thing. Like the first two movies I worked on were in New York and Candida was a, had a very particular, she had her crew. She had a certain way of doing things. I would say those were so like, for the most part, ethically shot. You can't control like a porn actor that comes in from Los Angeles, who's used to a certain world who may still act a certain way. Like you can't control everybody Mm -hmm. on the set. I think it really shows up with the intention of the people behind the, like the director and the producer. Now I will say like when I came out, when I did personal touch, I came to California to do that. And I was, I brought one person with me, a friend of mine who just came on and like worked as my assistant. So I had somebody on set to support me, but everybody else was Los Angeles porn people. And they all, including the performers, they all had a rapport with each other already. I was the outsider and the way they did things was not always the way I would do things. In fact, I remember one in particular, this was a playgirl shoot and I had specifically said to the female performers, you get to call the shots in terms of like where you want this person to come on you. If you want them to come inside of you, if you want them to come on you. And in one scene, the male said to her, I'm going to come on your face. And she said, yeah, come on my face. And I actually stopped the scene and I'm like, wait, cut. I'm sorry. And I, I am sure that they were very pissed because they just wanted probably the scene to be done at that point. But right. I want, I checked in with her. I'm like, do you actually want him to come on your face? Like he suggested it and you said, yes. Are you saying yes because you want this or because you feel like you have to? And to me, like those moments, you can't check out in porn, right? So, what was her response? I'm so curious. Well, her response was like, mm, eh, he doesn't have to come on my face. And I'm like, okay, then let's find someplace else. Right. Like, because she hadn't thought about it. Like it was so So like going along with the program, not really necessarily wanting that to happen. Right. And so it's hard to say on Pornhub, like which ones are like the female driven or the, like which ones are being consensually empowered versus are being done with somebody who's like just agreeing to do something because they need the money or because like, so To me, there are certain directors or companies like Pink and White Productions, Jiz Lee, Madison Young, actually even even more probably mainstream than those would be Erica Lust and Petra. I'm not remembering. Is it Boynton? I'm. I'm hoping that's her last name, but these particular Erica Lust in particular, she is a female director and she her stuff is so ethically done. Like she'll go on shows and talk about like how she chooses things and where these stories come from. And just to me, it's like finding the directors that you know you can trust to say that this porn feels consensual. Now, sometimes porn doesn't feel consensual and it is, right? Like, so it's hard to say, but like, I also think some of the amateur stuff like on Pornhub, that's interesting to me because why are these people shooting it? Like, are they shooting it because they really just love having sex and they want other people to see it? Is it voyeuristic? There used to be some websites where couples could shoot and upload their own stuff and mm-hmm. just do it that way. So I really think Like if you're looking for very ethically made porn, then you have to look at who the director is. Okay. And now are there male directors that you would say, you know what, that's ethically made or that's female friendly, but it's a male director or is it always a female? I'm sure it's not always a female. I'm thinking like I haven't made, or, you know, it's been over a decade since I've really worked in the industry like that. 
I would say that one of the best ways to sort of find that out is to reach out to performers that somebody would like if they saw a performer and they can find her or him online and ask what it was like to work with this person, like, or, you know, who their favorite directors to work with are. I am sure, and I can think, although their names aren't coming to me, of some people that I felt like, oh, this would be a good male director to work with. Again, each director has their own rapport with different people, but, you know, somebody who promotes like their actors and actresses and who you will find, like you can find online, like people talking about people they like working with. And Mm -hmm. most actresses or actors will have a list of people they will not work with. So it really just depends. Um, But if there's a director or a particular, like if you like, like Wicked Pictures or you like Vivid, you know, Vivid is also very well known for both of them, actually Wicked, which Jessica Drake, another very prominent sex positive performer who actually goes around and teaches how to work with performers to therapists and things like that. Like just things Jessica Drake does, I would really a hundred percent trust. Again, that's a woman. She is partnered with a male porn director as well. So maybe his stuff is also along those lines, but I think it's really just sort of like doing your own research if you're uncertain and seeing if there's some, you know, negative or or positive comments that come up, if that's important to you when you're watching. Okay. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. So let's talk about women and masturbation. Okay. Because I remember when I was a teenager, let's say, I remember hearing that it was okay for boys to masturbate, but literally nobody ever talked about female masturbation. And I remember wondering if I was like some crazy freak that I was doing that. You know, I literally thought I was the only young girl in the world that was doing that because it was just never talked about. So, and it's talked about more now, but what is it about? Because I've actually spoken to women who have not only chosen to be celibate, they don't masturbate. So they're literally going months or years at a time with like no orgasm whatsoever. Why do you think that is? Well, there's so many reasons that it could be. One, when I work with clients around this, I Mm -hmm. always actually, I like to check out what are the negative or positive messages you received around sex growing up? Like, you know, what is the first message you remember? I mean, even when you're talking about masturbation, you said, Allison, you remember that like it was talked about that it was okay for boys, but nobody even talked about it for girls. So just that like in and of itself is a message, the silence around female pleasure, that's a message, right? There are also messages like, you see in certain religions about touching yourself or what's going to happen to you if you touch yourself. You know, when I was doing research for my book on female masturbation, some of the most fascinating stuff was the historical facts. In fact, like Kellogg's cornflakes and graham crackers were both first created as foods designed to curb sexual behavior. And they were both very bland. They didn't have sugar in them. Right. Um, The idea it both, Kellogg and Graham were Seventh-day Adventists. So there's a religion where if somebody says I'm a Seventh-day Adventist or even Catholicism, I'm not, Judaism has its own stuff. All religions have their own stuff, but there are certain religions that tend to heavily emphasize negative punishment around sexuality. Mm -hmm. So that's going to play a part in this, how our parents taught us. The other piece, and I really encourage this for all parents of young children, of any child, is how we first approach seeing our child touch themselves because almost all kids are going to touch themselves. If it's stop, don't do that. That's disgusting. Go wash your hands. Like all of those things, those are immediately negative messages. They do it as babies. They do it as toddlers. They do it in utero. They've seen masturbation in utero. So right. It's a comfort. They recognize a pleasure spot for themselves. So it's like even encouraging, like, Hey, does that feel good? Here's one thing I'd like to share. Like, I'm so glad it feels good. It's generally better to do that when you're like alone or going to your bedroom and just spending some time by yourself. And you can do that whenever you want, right? Like that's a different approach. So some of it's parent message, some of it's religious messages, some of it's cultural messages. The other thing, and I think 
this is something the sex education field has really started to also validate and recognize. And I used to do this all the time. So I'm at fault too, is talking about the bodies like, well, male bodies, there's it's external and it's so easy to grab. And of course you're going to touch it. And female bodies are complicated and internal and they're harder to figure out. And that's negative messaging in and of itself, because most of the female like genitals is not actually internal. Yes. You can go inside the vagina to find a G spot, which for some people that does nothing right but the clitoris is technically external and you just have to be able to know where it is but medical books for years didn't even have pictures of the clitoris did not like talk about the clitoris and this and mis- isn't it made from the same tissue as the penis a hundred percent so, so fact, essentially it's the same i mean I, same. yeah except two things so at eight weeks all fetus all fetuses are female until eight weeks in utero then if there are y chromosomes and they are working properly right they start to create male genitals the clitoris is the head of the penis it's the same it's an it's an i can't say that word but it's the same as the head of the penis right um the foreskin is actually the same as the lips the the testes are the same as the eggs and the scrotum is the same as the outer lips like the it's all that I did not know. And it just forms differently depending on the hormones that. Yeah. Wow. And the only other difference is the penis has like about 4,000 nerve endings and the clitoris has between eight and 9,000. So it's way more sensitive. And the clitoris is the only organ in the human body designed solely for pleasure. Which so, is a hint right there that is exactly, supposed to be enjoyed. <laughs> exactly. But there just there was like not a lot of messaging around female bodies and, mm-hmm. and still is not that much. There's some great books that have come out in the last, you know, decade or so. But like really female pleasure and is was such a taboo topic until I feel like the 1970s. Because even mm-hmm. when you look at like the history of vibrators, they were designed for medical purposes to cure hysteria. In the 1970s, what was hysteria as it turns out, right? Right. Explain that. Well, I mean, there's argument that hysteria is not a real thing. And it's still like an insult, like hysterical women. It's like when women have emotions, Mm -hmm. then they can be defined as hysterical. When when women have big emotions, right? So that's really what like hysteria is. So they cured it with a vibrator. Sometimes they cured it with a vibrator. They got a woman <laughs> off and then she was fine. Right. And then maybe, she was caught. <laughs> right. Maybe it's somewhat sexual frustration. Oh my God. But isn't that all of us, male and female? I mean, that's, you know. Yes. But I think the difference is that boys start talking about it and normalizing. Like, I yeah. mean, like even this idea, like they talk about masturbation or ejaculation or like circle jerks. I don't know if those, how often those happen, but like, these are things yeah. you know as a kid. Right. Like, you know, and because when a male ejaculates, there's a visual experience that comes out of his penis. There's like a certainty about it. So it's easier to talk about something that you can describe with certainty. Yeah, that makes sense. And yeah. from your experience in all of your research, in all of your education, and then even being a therapist, do you find that there is a connection between women who enjoy masturbating and women who enjoy sex more with their partner or who are more sexually active with their partner and women who don't masturbate being less sexually active with their partner or not enjoying sex as much with their partner, or is there no connection? I'm not sure if there's a connection. What I have found is that there are women who like masturbated young, who Mm -hmm. once they had a partner don't masturbate as frequently, but like feel like, well, I know the things that I need to do, or I know what to ask of my partner. I feel like that the masturbation peeps, if women have masturbated, they're often more confident in knowing how their body works, what feels good, what they need to do to have an orgasm, what an orgasm feels like. Now there is 10% of the population of females that cannot orgasm. That is a thing that not like, so sometimes when people come to me and they say, I've never had an orgasm, I want to be like really helpful in trying to get them to have one because there's a huge psychological component, but I also want to recognize there's a possibility that they won't have one for whatever physiological or reason. Or so it could actually be physiological. It's not necessarily a mental or emotional block. It could be their yeah. physiology. Yeah. And I mean, I haven't, it's interesting with the clients who come in who women who have not masturbated, you see it's a very common pattern for them to start therapy, but not really finish it. So it's hard to know 
if it's physiological, because it's like the follow, they get fed up after a little while Mm -hmm. or they get bored or they're just annoyed, distressed. It didn't happen magically. So it's hard to know. And it's also hard, like an OBGYN going to your regular medical doctor you're not going to be able to know what's going on. Now going to like a pelvic pain therapist, a physical therapist who specializes in pelvic therapy, it doesn't even have to be pain, who will go inside a female's body and say, oh, you're tight here. You're hypertonic. I can feel scar tissue here. These are things that are preventing you from pleasure or orgasm or whatever. Oh, your clitoris, like it tends to like tuck away more. Like those are things, right. That from an orgasm perspective, like they may be able to help you see what's going on physiologically. I also want to say like, in terms of that, there are lots of sex educators who talk about other types of orgasms. Barbara comes to mind. She's an excellent, she wrote a book called urban Tantra years ago, and it's such Mm -hmm. a groundbreaking book on kink and Tantra. And she talks about energy orgasms. Jaya, who was just featured on sex, love and goop. They just did a Mm -hmm. series she's got this whole sort of love languages for sex. It's called the core erotic blueprints. I saw that. Yeah. Yeah. And she talks about like orgasms that are energetic. Like, so I want to say when, when I say 10% of women may not have like clitoral or vag, more women will not have vaginal, but may not be able to experience the physiological genital orgasm so easily or ever. Like there are other things that can be perceived as orgasms. Like there are, it, it might not be the series of rhythmic contractions that are defined as an orgasm, but there are other energetic releases. So it's possible for everyone to experience pleasure. It's just not always possible to experience it in the same ways. So you are a, tell me again what your credential is. You're a licensed family and couples therapist. I have two credentials. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. And I'm also, I have a master's in sex education. So I have two master's degrees, one's in counseling and one's in sex education. And I'm finishing up my PhD in sex education right now. So I'm currently actually in my research phase of my dissertation. Okay. So what is something that is surprising about, because we could talk about women's sexuality all day long, but what is surprising about men's sexuality or maybe men's emotions as it pertains to sex that a lot of people wouldn't know? So interestingly, I think one of the things that when you asked that question that popped into my mind immediately is that you know, a man's penis is also psychologically impacted. It's not maybe a surprise, but I would see a number of men who had erectile dysfunction, whether it was getting an erection, keeping an erection, being able to ejaculate. And I always will suggest that the first thing, if somebody comes in with erectile dysfunction is they mm-hmm. need to be a doctor. They need sure, to go, yeah. get, like, everything is checked out. But once that is checked out and everything is a-okay, Then I want to look at the dynamics in a relationship. And oftentimes the partner's lack of support, lack of compassion, potentially the partner's infidelity. I've seen this a lot, or like there's a lack of trust on that side. Like that's going to influence an erection just as much as anything else. And I think a lot of times when ED happens, the partner will often blame the person with ED for something being wrong that they need to fix. And it's usually a couple's problem. And one other thing that I think really shows up, this is not just a male or female thing, because one of the biggest things that brings people into therapy around sex, sex and money are the two things that bring people into therapy most, (laughs) but like in sex is desire discrepancy. And this is not new. This is David Schnarch, who he just passed a year ago, but he was an amazing clinical psychologist around sexuality. And he really talked a lot about low and high desire partners. So the low desire partner is the person who wants the less sex in the relationship. It could be they want it 50 times a day and the other person wants it 52, right? Like that's obviously not most of the, any of us really, that would be very hard and you'd be very sore, but what, and the high desire partner. And that when people come in, the high desire partner is feeling rejected. The low desire partner is feeling frustrated. And it's always essential to acknowledge, even though this isn't what either of them wants, that the low desire partner controls the sex in the relationship. And just that piece of information is really liberating because both people feel it and it's a calling out of it because the low desire partner doesn't want that responsibility, but they have to say no when they don't want sex. And so therefore the sex and the cycle continues. 
And that is one of the most common cycles that I see in sex therapy. Well, that's something actually that brings up a really important question. So if you are the low desire partner, should you say yes, even when you're not in the mood to keep the relationship healthy? Or do you have the right to have autonomy over your own body and say no when you're not in the mood? But if you keep saying no, then you're almost like creating a dynamic where you're asking the other person to stay monogamous, but they're not getting their needs met. So what's the right thing to do there? Right. So the, first of all, it goes into consent, right? First and foremost, like if a person is a no, then they are a no. And that is really important to allow that person to advocate for themselves, the low desire Mm -hmm. partner to be able to say no, because if they say yes, and they are a no and a yes out of obligation is a no, then they are going to resent their partner. They're going to resent themselves They are That is not going to lead to more connection. Now for some people, small portion who are willing to say yes and feel they can consent to saying Yes. Faking it till you make it can work, right? It can. Saying is there for a reason. What I would suggest in that situation as like a very general to start, like I would need to know more about these people. But in ultimately, if you're saying no, it's not saying no without an option. It's I'm a no right now, check in tomorrow, or I'm a no right now, but I hear you and I know you need this and I will make sure it happens this week. I will find a time to be, or I'm a no right now, but I'm willing to give you a blowjob or I'm willing to watch you masturbate or whatever it is. So I think like the problem in the low desire part is when you say no without any conversation, then the high desire, what you're right. What does the high desire partner do? Hopefully they're not going to go outside the marriage without a conversation and maybe some therapy. But here's the other thing about open relationships, because that's another big thing that shows up in sex therapy. And I'm all for all types of relationship styles. I think open relationships can work really well. Now, my thought is that if the couple is staying together and they have chosen to not, like some people choose to be in a sexless relationship, or I think Dan Savage calls it a companionate relationship, something like that where they've agreed we're staying together, but we're not going to have sex with each other anymore. You still have to make an effort if that's the relationship you're staying in to connect. And so opening the relationship, if you, if that's something that happens for some couples, right? If they're going outside the relationship to have intimacy and sex, I'm going to still say, you have to make sure that you're keeping your sex life alive here. You have to make sure that you are bringing some of that new relationship energy, some of that new sexual energy back to each other. So you have to figure out how you're going to do that. If you're opening it up and not having sex with each other, and maybe it's even, I have some concerns about don't ask, don't tell. I think that's a harder relationship model to sustain, but maybe we're starting with that. How are you going to stay connected with your partner? Because don't ask, don't tell creates secrets immediately. And that already is going to create disconnection. So I'm always looking at like everything we're doing in the sexual relationship is to create connection and to be understood. And the Mm -hmm. truth is over the course of, um, the pandemic at the beginning, I really, I learned through like acronyms a lot of the time, even though I can't remember what scuba means at all. But so I was the word love, like I sat with it for a while and I was like, love is listening, observing, validating, and empathizing. And I see that in almost all the couples that come to see me for sex issues, communication issues, they all want to be seen and understood. So that is like the biggest key in the relationship to get your partner, even if you don't agree with your partner, right? Like even around the sex to get that they need more sex, even if you don't. And to uh, understand that and to validate that for them, even if you can't give it to them right now, whether it's I'm going to work on this or I'm going to think about ways we could make this still exciting. I'm going to think about how we can get these needs met. What really upsets me is when couples are like, well, I don't need sex and they do, but if they're going to be with me, like they, they're not going to have sex. And like understanding that for some people, sex is a really, for a lot of people, Sex is what separates this relationship from any other relationship you could right. have. And so it is an essential component to be working on. It's not always play. It's not always fun. And it's not always easy. And it, it does take work, but that is a real, like you have to commit to that. And why is it? I think what confuses people is that, so at the beginning of a relationship in the courtship phase, 
Well, I guess there are exceptions to the rule, but basically everybody's desire is like all the way up here, you know? And then I think probably what happens is at some point it's natural to take it personally if the person is still not wanting you like that, because you're like, wait a second, what happened to the way you used to feel about me when we first got together? Like what happened there? So what is that disconnect? Why does that happen? Yeah. So there's been research on this. So um, there's research out of uh, Helen Fisher who's done a lot on pair bonding and she actually had like people go into MRI machines and look at photos of people like they had like love for and Mm -hmm. new relationships, new love. It hits the same parts of the brain as like addicty behavior, like as that high. So part of it is the high you're experiencing in the new relationship energy. It's sometimes called limerence. It's a period of up to two years where you have butterflies in your stomach. You're like excited and can't stop thinking about the person. You're kind of obsessed and addicted to them. And that phase is always going to end. It's going to shift because that you can't maintain that level of obsession with somebody for that long and then actually get to know them. The other piece, and I love Esther Perel says this, like for the first two or three months of your relationship, your representative shows up. The person that you want to be all the time, the best version of yourself is who, who who's visiting with your new partner, right? right. So you're going to have all of the goodness and all that good stuff, but the representative gets tired over time. Like they need a vacation and then the rest of you shows up and the rest of you isn't as perfect or as shiny as the other parts of you. And that's the reality. So you go from that love to an actual authentic love where you come to understand your triggers, you know, what you can accept, your compassion, your annoyances, and you have to live with all of that. That is going to change the sexual piece of the relationship a hundred percent because there's more of you to share. And so that's when the work kicks in, when the high, when the addicty piece sort of goes away. And that's when the authentic love and the actual adult love, I should say, comes in. Mm -hmm. Okay. And is there a pattern When couples come to see you, is there a typical pattern like, oh my God, so many couples come to see me at year five or year seven or year three or something like that? Or like so many couples come when they're already in crisis, when it's already like, I don't know if I want to stay in this relationship. I don't know if I can handle this anymore. If I don't get sex in the next two months, I'm leaving that's the problem that when it's a real problem, people come in, I hear, I should have started this a year ago. We should have started this a year ago. And so I think when you're coming in, when it's too late, that's a challenge. Or sometimes I've seen like in an open relationship, one person's had an infidelity and then they come to their partner and they're like, I want to open the relationship. Okay. It's not always too late there. I've seen a lot of work that can, good work that can be done, but it's a hard time because you've already created a relationship outside of here with rules that were not agreed upon. Now right. we're going to have to backtrack. So it's when people are coming in where we have to like really backtrack to look at something because it's gone too far. That's the problem. That could be before they're even married. Do you think that happy couples should be in couples therapy? Yes. And if not in couple, I think it's healthy for anyone, even if it's just for like six months, like let's check things out, you know, because I think another piece that I want to just say that shows up a lot in couples is the work of like Harville and his wife, Catherine Hendricks. They wrote a book called Getting the Love You Want, but it talks about how we often choose partners we think are nothing like our parents. And then the biggest triggers we have with our partners are the things our parents did that they are doing just like our parents, whether it's because we've projected it onto them, we've become a parent or they're actually like our parents. So we see a lot of that dynamic where like old patterns of childhood and relationship lessons come back up to haunt the new relationship. So I think in any relationship, there's going to be some triggers that show up. Even in happy couples, I feel like doing a six month, like really like, or three month couples therapy, this is like, Hey, we have dedicated time and space to talk about anything with a third person who is safe. Like that's just going to be helpful. Now, if you don't show up and like do the work and bring up things, then, you know, what are you getting out of it? But the other thing, and I'll show, I keep them right here next to my desk. Cause I show these to so many of my yes. clients are This happens to be a deck I like. It's on Amazon. You can get it anywhere, but these best self-intimacy cards. Okay. 
I also have here like their date deck. They make a, a number of different decks, but these like are great to pull out when you have time with your partner to just ask questions. Like for example, one of the questions my partner, my husband and I did the other night was, you know, if you could redo one year of your life, which one, one would it be? So they're not all sexual questions, but I they're love questions that. Okay. that are going to bring in deeper intimacy. And that's so part sparks? of Who the, it's those? called best self. Best self makes them. Okay. Yeah. And there's lots of different decks out there. Esther Perel has a deck like more on sexuality, but like, I think any of these things that are going to make you lean in and ask each other questions, because we get really blase in our relationships and we're talking about the kids, the house, like who's going to work when the schedules, whatever, right? Like we stop talking about like the depth at times. In fact, there's something online that I'll often recommend. The New York Times did this years ago, this article called 36 Questions That Lead to Deeper Intimacy. And the 36 questions are aligned in a specific way. They get really intense. They're not about sex, but when you do them, it's like you're guaranteed more intimacy. And I I really do think they work. I get so excited asking questions and even more than that, answering questions. And maybe I'm like a little bit of a narcissist, but it excites me to like, if I first start dating someone, I love when they pepper me with questions. Yeah. It's it's exciting to me. Like it lights up my brain. Someone's getting to know you. And I will say about the narcissist thing, like, I think any of us that have like sort of that drive to speak, to do like media, to do whatever, like you have to have a little narcissism. It doesn't make you a narcissist, like there's a big narcissist out there. but there's a healthy level of narcissism. Yeah. Right. Yes. That everybody like could benefit from. Yes, that that's true. I would agree with that. So I see that. Well, I'm assuming you're dressed for pride month. I just, yes, I decided happy pride. Yes. Okay. Oh, that's so awesome. So you yourself, you were talking before, or do you consider yourself sexually fluid or do you consider yourself heterosexual? I don't consider myself hetero. Sometimes I will say hetero flexible. Sometimes I consider myself more bisexual. Um, I actually, it's funny because I will always ask like pronouns and things when I'm working with clients to see, you know, just because someone looks a certain way, I don't like labels. And I find that labels are limiting, like even mental health labels. When you give someone a diagnosis, then they feel like this is who I am and I have to work within this box. And so I've struggled my whole life with a label. I have been attracted to both men and women, you know, and I think that's a little different than pansexual where it feels like it's like the sexual fluidity and the non-binariness and all of that. Maybe, you know, if I was dating right now, like I could be available to more, but to me, I, I think the most comfortable term with where I'm at in my life is heteroflexible, but the reality is like, if I wasn't like, I'm also bisexual. So it's a very hard mix to sort of identify with okay. for me and a complicated thing, but I also identify as an ally. Like that is a hundred percent, like my whole life or my, since my adulthood, I should say my community has been queer. And I've embraced that community. Like, and I, one of the reasons I think I resonated, especially as I got into sexuality work was when you are not heterosexual, you actually have to think about who you are and you actually think about who, who you like, like when you're heterosexual, it's like, here's the way it's going to go. Or, and I'm, I know I'm generalizing a little Yeah. when you're anything else you have to think about, are you going to share this with people? Who am I out to? What am I going to like? How do I present? Right. Like you're, and I acknowledge this with all my non-heterosexual clients, that one thing that's okay. really exhausting is constantly coming out. Like when you're straight, okay. nobody's like, Hey, you're, are you straight? Like, and you know, when you're, when you're anything else, if you decide to let somebody know you're coming out to somebody each and every time, it's a lifelong process. Is it at a point now at this point in time, 2022, and maybe it's not, I, I don't know. But is it at a point now where you would just encourage clients to just treat it as just a matter of fact, to just talk about that part of their lives the way a straight person would talk about that that part of their lives, just in a matter of fact? I wish it could be. And I think the world we live in is just not safe enough for a lot of people to do that, right? Like, Like, I think there's a heterosexual privilege that Mm -hmm. comes with that safety of like, being accepted. I mean, I had a client, 19 year old client who identifies as bisexual and, you know, she's young 
And when she came out to some friends in another area outside of where she lived, they had really strong negative reactions. Like there's lots of parts of the world that it's not safe to just accept it and come out. There's lots of families who don't accept it. So okay. that's part of the challenge. And another thing that I think is really big, and it's it's talked a lot about in homophobia, internalized homophobia. So when I see couples who are not straight, like a gay male couple, for example, I need to understand the internalized homophobia both of them have because somewhere down the road, they were likely told to hate themselves, whether it was like, hate yourself because you're gay or like a message, like a dad driving down the street going, look at that queer or whatever it is that the other person, like the young boy internalizes, but that is a real thing. So it's, Unfortunately, not. I would love it to be like, yes, be out there. But the reality is that's not safe for everyone. So you're saying that there are people in the LGBTQ community that struggle with internal homophobia? Yeah, that struggle with the negative messages that they were wrong for being who they are. Okay. Even before they came out. And how does it play out in your marriage? Like, do you just kind of shut it down and say, well, I'm married to a man and that's that? Or how does that Um, work? I mean, you know, for us, like, he's an open person as well. So it's not that we have to shut it down. It's that, like, we use it, you know, he knows, like, we can talk about attractive women. Like, he can talk to me about women he finds attractive. Like, I'm very open to all of that. Like, I don't have that. I also feel very safe with my partner. So Mm -hmm. I don't have that jealousy that he's going to go and do something behind my back. So for us, it's just like, it's accepted. And it's like, it doesn't change anything in our dynamic. Now, the difference is like, if I go out, right, like everyone assumes I'm heterosexual, right? And that's an assumption that I, gives me privilege, right? If I went out, there was a time in New York where I was dating a woman and I actually was fairly uncomfortable in public because it felt like a lot of times if we were holding hands or doing something, it felt like it was a show for other people. So even though that was my own stuff, I mean, that's probably some of my internalized homophobia, right? Mm-hmm. Like that like two women kissing is like erotic to men and that's why you do it or whatever. No, I don't think that, I don't think that was a hangup of yours. I think that there are a lot of people, especially men who do find it erotic or do find it a matter of like curiosity. Yeah. Stop and look, you know? Yeah. And so that created some feelings for me. So then, you know, I was very much more aware of how I showed up in the world so I okay. think if, if anything, what it does for me, and, and honestly, like, I don't, I don't like usually post a lot about sexual identity or anything. So there's a part of me that recognizes like me not sharing is also my privilege, right? Like I'm right. not in a relationship with another, you know, woman right now that like, it would be different. Like I'd be kind of forced to share if I was sharing my life. So it really just, I think the recognition that you know, he's very open. He comes from a family where there were a lot of gay men in his family. So like his family had a lot of gay friends. Like, so he's been around sexual difference or sexual minorities since, Mm -hmm. you know, since childhood and he's in his forties now. So like that is helpful for sure. Okay. But so my last question on this is that, because I don't know what this feels like, when a bisexual person enters into a committed relationship with either sex, do you ever get a feeling of the grass might be greener with the other gender? And what am I missing out on? Or do you not feel like that? I mean, I feel like it really, it's not greener. There's challenges on each side, right? I think Mm -hmm. what happens, and this is the big conundrum, is that when someone identifies as bisexual, there's a lot of judgment, like, oh, you just are afraid to be this, or you just know you're that. Like, even when I was dating a woman, she's like, oh, you're a straight woman. And I'm like, because I had dated more men. And I actually, you know, emotionally, I think I'm more comfortable, like being in a relationship with a man. So there's like a bias of like, who you are is indecisive, is undecided. Like, you're like, just not picking a team. I think that's yeah, yeah. like the culture and like the other identities out there, but I think that's the biggest bias. Okay. Do you pray? And if so, who or what do you pray to? Hmm. I don't often pray. And that's interesting when I do. I mean, I guess it's to this idea of God, mm-hmm. um, but I'm not sure who or what that means. Okay. 
And what do you think you came into this life as Jamie Waxman to learn? And what do you think you came here to teach? Mm-hmm. Well, I do feel like the teaching part is much easier to answer. Like that is, I do feel like I came in here to, well, A, to teach about sexuality. Like that mm-hmm. feels like that's feels very much like the right path. Maybe also to just in my family dynamic to just teach another way of being maybe. Cause I feel like I'm the purple sheep of my family is what I like to say. So to just be able to like, I don't know if I'm really teaching, but to show like another right. way of being. Right. And I think I, the lesson, like, I think I'm in this life to learn like acceptance and compassion and to love myself and accept others. And I think that's sometimes been a hard lesson for me. And you also like learn really just how we as humans all impact each other. If that makes sense. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. And then lastly, where can people find you and connect with you? So the easiest place is through my website, which is waxmansextherapy.com. I'm also on Instagram. I don't post a lot right now as sex therapist mom. And I do have a Facebook page, but probably those would be the two best places to reach me. Okay, perfect. All right. I want to thank you so much. I had such a good time with you and I learned a lot. Hopefully the audience will. And it's so good to see you. So I hope this is not the last time. I hope not either. I'm here. I hope so. uh, Okay. Reach out. Okay. I will. See you out. I'll talk to you later. Okay. Bye. Bye. So that was interesting, don't you think? I had fun. I know, (laughs) for one, I certainly enjoyed it, and I learned a lot. She really is a wealth of information, and I hope you guys really got a lot out of it. You know, I tried to cover a wide variety of topics related to human sexuality, and because it's something that is such an important part of all of our lives, and it doesn't always get spoken about in the most open and freeing way. And I think that a lot of times people are pretty game to joke about sex, talk about sex in kind of a pop culture-y way, but they're not really comfortable opening up and discussing a lot of their sexual vulnerabilities or asking questions that they're concerned about. And I really feel like this conversation covered the gamut and did it in a, in a way that was graceful, somewhat entertaining, and extremely educational. So once again, you can follow Jamie Waxman on Instagram at Sex Therapist Mom, and you can look her up online at waxmansextherapy.com. You can also follow me on Instagram at the Allison Kugel, and I will catch you guys on the next go-around. Peace. Peace.